Be seated. So today we are observing the feast of Tikhon, bishop and ecumenist, and I confess I had to look him up. (laughs) But when I did, I was like, oh, I've seen his picture before. (laughs) Because his story is such that he was a Russian, he, he, he was a Russian Orthodox priest who was appointed bishop of Alaska and the Aleutian Islands at the end of the 19th, sorry, at the end of the 19th century. And so he went to Alaska as the bishop, you know, and, you know, Alaska and Russia really aren't that far apart. And there are lots of Russian Orthodox folks in, in Alaska. And so he came there as their bishop in sort of like, I don't know, 1895 or so. And while there, um, decided to expand his title to, from Bishop of, the, of Alaska and the Aleutian Islands to Bishop of Alaska and the Americas. <laughs> um, and so he began to travel across Canada and the United States, um, finding Russian communities and founding churches for them, but also engaging with other Christians Um, And so the time that I had seen his photograph is because he attended the ordination of the Bishop of Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, the Episcopal Bishop of Fond du Lac, Wisconsin in, you know, 1898 or something like that. And the photograph from that consecration of, there's about 10 or 12 bishops in in this black and white photograph and they all look very grumpy. (laughs) It's often thrown out as a picture of you know, how out of touch bishops are (laughs) with huge miters and all sort of hunched over. But on, you know, seven or eight of them are Episcopal bishops and they've got their big miters on and everything in the the Beretta belt of Anglo-Catholicism in the Episcopal church in the Midwest. But over on the side, there are several Orthodox bishops. And so he's one of those and he's there in his not mitre, but whatever the Russian Orthodox version of that sort of hat is, um, you know, and his veil and his big beard standing there. Um, and so he participated in that consecration. He didn't lay hands on, on the Bishop of Fond du Lac, but he was present and participated through his presence and prayers and did that consistently throughout the United States. And in doing so, became known as an ecumenist, became known as somebody who was working for the unity of the church. And as I heard that, I kept thinking how it's interesting that um, the ability to travel and live in foreign lands is something that is often either for the very powerful or the the least powerful. (laughs) That people come to to new countries because either it's so bad where they are that they have to flee (laughs) Or because, like Tikhon, they have the ability to, through their power and their job or whatever, you know, come to a new place and and be received graciously all over. It's kind of an interesting, he must have had amazing, interesting experiences throughout his his tenure as Bishop of the Americas. (laughs) And I thought Arizona was a big diocese. And then he was recalled to Russia as Bishop um, somewhere in Russia proper. And then in 1917, he was made the Patriarch of Russia. It's a really interesting year to end up as the Patriarch of Moscow. And so he 
was stuck between the Bolsheviks and the Tsars. He tried to kind of hold a steady course of saying that the church was the church. Um, he did speak out against the killing of the Tsars, um, but then did not do all that the Bolsheviks desired either. And so he ended up being sort of put under house arrest by the 1920s. And his life ended in 1925, um, not from any violence, but he, in the story of his life, he, he celebrated the divine liturgy on April 4th, or April 5th, and died two days later on April 7th. So a life of faith that ended almost with the very words of the divine liturgy. And so the gospel appointed today is John 17, the great ecumenical gospel that, you know, I will make them all one. And as we hear Tikhon's story today, and as we think about all that is going on with the current patriarch of Moscow, and all that is going on with Russia and Ukraine right now and in our world today, Jesus' words that I pray, praying for all of his disciples and all who will be his disciples, that they may all be one, lands on my heart like a sort of like, how? How are we ever going to be one? <laughs> how, how are we going to be one with the current patriarch of Russia right now who is supporting the invasion of Ukraine? I don't know. But I do know that if we are to be one with him, and if we are to be one with lots of other people around the world, it is only through Jesus' intercession. It is only through the work of Jesus as our, and, and, and God and the Holy Spirit as our advocate that, that Christ's promise that we will be one, not that we are one, but that we will be one, can ever be fully um, realized. Um, you know, I, I hear this gospel, and I, um, when I, at the week of prayer for Christian unity this year, I was asked to do a thing for Arizona Faith Network or for, for some, some ecumenical group. And I, I said, well, I think it's important to ask, when we pray for Christian unity, what are we praying for? <laughs> like, when we pray for Christian unity, which we do, <laughs> Are we praying that everyone be made like us? That doesn't seem right. Are we praying that um, there will be some sort of least common denominator source of Christianity that we'll all be able to adhere to? That doesn't seem right either. Are we saying that, you know, that there are lots of Christians who hold lots of things that are different from us, from me, from you? And what are we saying when we pray for Christian unity? And I think my understanding of what it is that we pray for when we pray for Christian unity is rather like what we pray for when we pray for peace. Like when we pray for peace, we're not just praying for people to just stop doing violence. We're praying for the intervention of God in some way that will bring about peace with justice, right? We're pray we do want the cessation of violence, but we don't want you know, inequality to continue. We want a peace that is just and lasting and reflective of what it might be to live in love with our neighbors. And in the same way, when we pray for Christian unity for the church, I think what we're praying for is not just that 
we're all one and we pretend we're not different, (laughs) but that we're praying that God will turn our hearts, all of our hearts in such a way that we could be one and all be changed into the church that is the actual reflection of what Jesus has given us, which means that we will probably change too. I don't think that the Episcopalians are right on everything, (laughs) that we will be changed in such a way that we will see all of our siblings in Christ as fully siblings in Christ, and we will be fully seen as siblings in Christ, and that God will have worked God's mercy in such a way that the things that seem so insurmountable between us now have been paved away, not by ignoring them, but by changing our hearts in such a way that they no longer stand between us. We will all be converted in a sense. And that becomes, for me, is my prayer for Christian unity. And I think is a, is a good prayer for us to pray on a day when we remember an ecumenist who, who went to great lengths to learn about other churches at a time and in a culture in which it would have been really easy for him to just stay in his own silo. Amen.